The day is coming when things that seem so important to us now will be seen as trivial, unimportant, and even meaningless. And the things that now seem to be somewhat unreal to us will be seen as all that has ever really mattered. The day I am referring to, of course, is the day when we stand face to face with our Lord Jesus Christ. On that day, things that seem so important to us now will be seen as trivial, unimportant, and even meaningless. And the things that now seem to be somewhat unreal to us, such as heaven and eternity, will be seen as all that has ever really mattered. If you are like me, you find it difficult to lay hold of those future eternal realities. The events and obligations and responsibilities of this life have such a pull on us that we can go for long periods of time without even thinking about the future realities of eternity. So my prayer is that the passage we come to this morning will be used by the Lord to realign our thinking, our perspective, and our living. The passage is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, so please turn with me there if you are not already there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and please follow along as I read verses 1 through 15, although our text will only consist of verses 9 through 15, but I want to read beginning in verse 1 to set the full context in our minds. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ, Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. <clears throat> as you can see from reading through these verses, Paul is attempting to straighten out some problems in the Corinthian church. 
because many in their midst were carnal or spiritually immature, they were trying to pit Paul and Apollos against one another, and they were urging those in their assembly to divide up into factious groups around one of these spiritual leaders. Paul confronts this error by saying that he and Apollos were merely servants, and as servants of God, they were one. He says in verse 8, Now he who plants and he who waters are one. In other words, faithful servants of the Lord are not to be compared and contrasted as if one is more important than the other or one is better than the other. How foolish. How utterly foolish. Those who faithfully serve the Lord to their utmost, to the utmost of their ability, are not to be pitted against one another or elevated above one another because they are one in the same cause. They simply want to see the Lord's work move forward. So they are equally valuable and equally irrelevant. They are equally valuable in the sense that according to 2 Timothy 2.21, the Lord chooses to use all clean vessels for His service. Yet they are equally irrelevant in the sense that they are merely servants who plant and water but God is the one who gives the increase. But even though we are merely servants who plant and water, the end of verse 8 says God will reward us for our labor. The end of the verse says, And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Now think about this, beloved. Not only does God in His goodness allow us to share in His precious work of ministering to people, this verse says He will even reward us for doing so. That is truly amazing. He doesn't need us in His work. He doesn't really need us to touch other people's lives, but He allows us the privilege of taking part in this process, and if we do take part faithfully, He will reward us for doing so. What a gracious God we serve. He gives us salvation, though we are utterly undeserving. And He even goes beyond that by rewarding us for living for Him and serving Him. The salvation we we receive is the same for all believers. The reward, however, is not the same for all believers. The end of this verse says, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. God is going to reward his servants, but please hear this, not based on success, not based on amount of time, based on labor and faithfulness. This statement at the end of verse 8 prompts Paul to launch into a description of a future event called the judgment seat of Christ. That is what our text is about, consisting of verses 9 through 15. But before we jump into these verses, we have to answer an important question. Is this evaluation and rewarding that will take place at the judgment seat of Christ, is this, this event, which is described in these verses, is it only for Paul? Is it only for people like Paul and Apollos and pastors and other vocational ministers? The answer to that question is clearly no. We know that from what Paul says, not only here, but 
over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So turn over with me to 2 Corinthians for just a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Notice verse 9. Paul says, Therefore we make it our aim, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now this begs the question, to whom does the we refer here in this verse? It says, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Who is the we? It refers to Christians. It refers to the members of the body of Christ. It refers to the true church. When Paul writes these words, he is talking to the believers in Corinth. So it's believers he has in mind when he says we. Let me illustrate this from this chapter. Look at verse 1. He says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now let me ask you, can a non-Christian say that? No. Not verse 1. A non-Christian can't say, well, if this earthly tent, if my body is destroyed, I have a new body from God in heaven. No, this is a reference to Christians. Verse 5, same chapter. Verse 5 says, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Again, I ask, can a non-Christian rightly say that? No, not at all. A non-Christian cannot say, this this Holy Spirit has been given to me as a guarantee of my future inheritance. No. This is a reference to Christians. Verse 6 says, So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Again, I ask, is that true of non-Christians? If they're absent from the body, they're with the Lord. Absolutely not. No. All the way through this chapter, Paul uses the term we to refer to Christians. So that's how we know to whom he is referring in verse 10 when he says, for we, the same we all the way through here, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's talking about Christians. So understand this. Only believers and all believers will be present at the judgment seat of Christ. Let me say that again. Only believers and all believers will be present at the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 9 says that our aim in life ought to be to live in such a way that when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ, we will be well-pleasing to Him. The King James Version uses the phrase accepted of Him, which could be misleading because we are accepted of Christ if we are saved. That's a settled issue. The issue for For the children of God isn't whether or not we'll be accepted or rejected. That issue is settled at salvation. The issue is being well-pleasing to the Lord. Because you see, it is possible for a believer who is accepted in the beloved one Christ not to be well-pleasing to him. A prime example is the Corinthian believers. If you've read 1 and 2 Corinthians, you know this. They were accepted of him. That is, they were in Christ, those who were true believers, But some in their midst certainly were not well-pleasing to him the way they were living. 
That's why Paul writes so many rebukes, especially in 1 Corinthians, but also in 2 Corinthians. So the same thing can be true today of us as Christians. Again, I'll say, the issue for children of God isn't whether or not we are accepted of the Lord. The issue is, are we well-pleasing to the Lord? And there's a distinction between those. Verse 10 here also contains a phrase that can be confusing, because the end of the verse says, whether good or bad. So we're going to stand before the Lord, that each one may receive the things done according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, some people have jumped on that phrase to say that at the judgment seat of Christ, we are going to get in trouble for the sin we have committed, especially the sin we committed after salvation. But the confusion is cleared up when we understand the Greek word bad here in this verse. Allow me to quote. The Greek language mainly uses two words to speak of ethical or moral evil, kakos and paneiras. Neither of these words are used here. The Greek word translated bad in this verse is phalos. This word is used to speak of something that is worthless. It is not a moral or ethical word and has no reference to evil or sin. It is simply referring to something that has no lasting value, something that is worthless or valueless. This judgment, then, is not to decide whether we've done moral good or evil. It is simply to take those things we did as believers and to see which of them had eternal value and which did not. The believer is then rewarded on the basis of the valuable ones that remain. The difference in rewards comes because some believers have understood their priorities in life and have stored up valuable things, while other believers have stored up worthless things. It's not a question of moral evil. It's only a question of sorting out the valuable from the worthless, end quote. That is the specific purpose of the judgment seat of Christ. Romans 14, 10 through 12 says, We have all been granted a stewardship in life. God has entrusted many things to every one of us here in this room. Time, resources, spiritual gifts, natural talents, abilities, opportunities. And one day, we'll stand before the Lord to give an account of how we have used our stewardship. And these verses, verses 9 and 10, say that our number one aim in life should be to live in such a way that when we do appear before Christ, we will be well-pleasing to Him. And on that day, we will receive rewards for the things done here on earth, things that have eternal value. This is what is developed and described in our text back in 1 Corinthians 3. So let's go back there to our text in 1 Corinthians. In verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. Here in this verse, Paul uses two different analogies or word pictures to describe serving the Lord. He uses an agricultural analogy, and he uses a construction analogy. The first thing he says is that those who truly and genuinely serve the Lord are not competitors. He stresses this fact because, remember, the Corinthians were trying to make them competitors by dividing up into different camps. The Paul group, the Apollos group, the Peter group, etc., 
So Paul says, no, no, we, we are God's fellow workers. We are not competing with one another, and we certainly are not competing with God. We are laborers in the field, but only God can give it life and make it grow. That's what Paul is saying. The work is pictured as a field that should be cultivated and a building that should be constructed. That's how Paul describes the work of ministering to other people and serving the Lord. He continues the building analogy in verse 10. He says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Paul mentions the fact that it was his role to lay the groundwork for the church in Asia Minor, Macedonia, Greece. He was the master builder who was uniquely appointed by God to lay the foundation for virtually all of the churches in those regions. No one who rightly reads the New Testament can deny Paul's unique role in the early days of the church. So Paul isn't bragging here in verse 10 when he says these things. In fact, he says at the beginning of the verse that his calling and responsibility could only be attributed to the grace of God. Yet he sought to exercise his responsibility with wisdom, as he says here in this verse. And then at the end of the verse, he cautions all of us who have come behind him to exercise the same kind of wisdom in the way we build and in the way we serve the Lord. That's why the last phrase says, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. This reminds us of what he says over in chapter 10, verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. As a Christian, Paul is saying, as a Christian, you need to take heed to how you live your life and how you serve the Lord. Take heed. Take it seriously. Don't be nonchalant or casual in your approach to the Christian life. Don't be nonchalant and casual in your service to the Lord. Sadly, many Christians are casual about these matters. They don't take their Christian life seriously as they ought to. They don't take serving the Lord seriously as they ought to. They will live for the Lord and serve the Lord if they have time, if it's not too costly, if it's convenient, if they feel like it, if it's not a bother, if it's not a hassle. Beloved, that's no way to approach the Christian life. That's no way to approach serving the Lord. The Holy Spirit says through Paul's pen, take heed. Think about this. Give some thought to this. You are going to stand before Jesus Christ face to face someday to give an account of your life. So take this seriously. You're going to have your life evaluated for reward. You're going to have your service evaluated for reward. You ought to take it seriously. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul took his responsibility seriously to wisely lay the right foundation in the right way, and he exhorts all of us who come behind him to take our role just as seriously, to take our own lives just as seriously. And so he says in verse 11, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. This is an important statement because it sets the record straight. Paul did not contrive the foundation. He simply laid it down by preaching and teaching the truth about Christ, 
his life, his death, his resurrection, his will, his purposes, his plans, etc. The Lord Jesus and all the truth about him is the foundation of the church. It is the foundation of our lives, and we are called to build on that. We are called to live for Christ. We are called to serve him with the awareness that our lives and our service will one day be evaluated by him. And so Paul says in verse 12, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Paul is saying this, as God's fellow workers... The way we live our lives is building something. We're building something with our lives. We're building something with our lives and our service to the Lord. And Paul is saying here, we can build with wood, hay, and straw, or we can build with gold, silver, and precious stones. Now, please understand something. Wood, hay, and straw aren't evil. There's nothing evil about wood. It's a good commodity. It's a good material. Hay, straw. But those things in this text represent those things that have no eternal value. They're they're not going to last. You see, there are lots of things we do as Christians that aren't necessarily evil or immoral. They're just insignificant. The tragedy of so many Christians isn't that they live terribly immoral lives. It's that they live insignificant lives. If they died, there would be no one who missed them, spiritually speaking, Because they don't really minister to anyone. They don't contribute to anyone's life spiritually in any way. So what Paul is saying here is this. The priority of our lives should be to invest our lives spiritually in the lives of others. Then we are building upon the foundation of Christ with gold, silver, and precious stones. That has eternal value. And that's what will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. That is the purpose of the judgment seat of Christ. To evaluate our lives, to evaluate the way we have built our lives, the, the, our service to the Lord, and those things which are, that have eternal value will be rewarded. That's the purpose of the judgment seat of Christ. Please hear me when I say, the judgment seat of Christ is not, it is not a final check before entrance into heaven is granted. This is what is so often pictured in in stories and movies and jokes and all of that. Beloved, we won't even be at the judgment seat of Christ unless we are already saved and guaranteed of heaven. It is totally foreign to Scripture. Please hear me. It is totally foreign to Scripture that St. Peter will be outside the pearly gates weighing out our deeds to see if we're going to make it in. That concept is nowhere in the Bible. The judgment seat of Christ has nothing to do with that false concept. It is not some kind of final check. I would also add that it's not a judgment, as some people teach, it is not a judgment of unconfessed sin or a judgment of the believer's sins committed after salvation. That's what a lot of people try to say. Well, the Lord took care of all of our sins prior to salvation, but the ones we commit after salvation, and especially the ones we don't confess, we got to give an account of those, and we're going to be judged for those. Both of those views really do injustice to the effectiveness of Jesus' death by basically saying the cross doesn't have the power to deal with all our sin. 
That's saying that the death of Jesus is somehow inadequate. It only covers part of our sin. Listen, when Jesus died on the cross, he took care of all of our sins, past, present, and future. In fact, when Jesus died on the cross, think about it this way, all our sins were future anyway. He died 2,000 years ago. All our sins were future. And if we were to die with just one unforgiven sin, we wouldn't even make it to the judgment seat of Christ. We'd be sent to hell, justly so. Colossians 2.13 says, when we were saved, when we placed faith in Christ, all, A-L-L, all our sins were forgiven. Past, present, future. Now, this leads some to ask, well, what is the purpose of confession then? 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, what is that saying? The purpose of confession is to restore fellowship and communion with the Father, not, not to take sin off our record. It is not to have sin taken off our record. All our sin was taken off our record at salvation. All of it. We confess our sins to the Lord, repent of them to restore fellowship and communion. So all of these things, all of these false concepts and notions that are often set forth have nothing to do with the judgment seat of Christ. I'll say it again. The judgment seat of Christ is not to deal with our sins. It is, a, it is a time of evaluation and reward. And when Paul used the term judgment seat of Christ, or literally in the Greek, bema seat of Christ, when he used that in 2 Corinthians 5.10, which we looked at earlier, the Corinthians would have un- undoubtedly known to what he was referring. Immediately when he used that phrase, they would have known what he was talking about. In that day, the bema seat was a raised platform mounted by steps. It was a seat of dignity prominence, and authority. It was a place rather than an act, and it had no connotation of penalty. Listen to this quote. Outside Corinth was a large Olympic stadium where athletes from all over Greece would assemble periodically to compete in the Greek Olympic Games. In the midst of the stadium, there was a raised platform, a platform of prominence, honor, and dignity. This platform was called the Bema Seat. The Bema. The winner of the contest would be led to the Bema where he would ascend the steps. When the victor reached the platform, an honored leading citizen would take an oak leaf cluster, a laurel wreath, or a garland and place it on him as a symbol of his triumph. End quote. You see, that's the idea behind the Bema seat. It is a time to step forward, to be evaluated, and to be rewarded. Now, you can understand this if you've ever been involved in athletic competition. And that's the analogy that Paul often uses when he is describing this. I mean, think about it. Is the guy who comes in fourth place in the race punished? Oh, you came in fourth. Bend over. We're going to whip you. That's not how it works. No, he just doesn't get the gold, silver, or bronze medal. But there's no punishment involved. That's why Paul said what he did over in chapter 9. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 9, and notice how he uses this analogy or this imagery. Verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 9 says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate or disciplined in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. 
Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others I myself should become disqualified. Disqualified from what? What's the context about? Salvation? No, not at all. Disqualified from receiving the prize. Disqualified from receiving the reward. This is what Paul says back in chapter 3. At the Bema seat of Christ, we will either receive reward or we'll suffer loss. As Paul says here, we're disqualified from the reward or the prize. Now back to our text there in chapter 3. So he says in verse 14... At this judgment seat of Christ, this evaluation time, verse 14, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. As I said earlier in the message, this is wondrous grace. Not only does God in his goodness allow us to serve him and to share in his precious work of of ministering to other people, he will even reward us for doing so. And not only that, according to what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 42, it seems as if the Lord is going to look for things for which to reward us. What an evidence of his goodness. Matthew 10, 42 says, And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Isn't that amazing? Even things that might seem to be little to us or trivial to us, will be rewarded by our Lord when they are done for His glory or for the motivation of serving other people in His name. This is the great heart of God. He longs to bless and reward His children. But sadly, there are some Christians who do not order their lives as they ought to. They do not live for eternity as they ought to. They live for themselves They live only for the here and now. And in verse 15, Paul says, If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. You see, for some Christians, the judgment seat of Christ will be a day of wonderful rewards. Those who've lived for Christ, sought to touch other people's lives, sought to be an encouragement to minister to other people, however, what, through whatever vehicle. But some Christians will not receive the full reward they could have received because they didn't order their priorities and live the kind of life they should have lived. In fact, not only will some fail to gain rewards, the indication of a few passages of Scripture is that some believers will actually have lived a life worthy of rewards for a period of time, But because of a failure to continue walking closely with the Lord, they will forfeit those rewards. This is exactly what Paul alludes to in in 1 Corinthians 9, which we just looked at a moment ago. He said, he disciplined his body and brought it into subjection, lest he would become disqualified from the rewards he would have otherwise received. In other words, Paul knew that at that point in his life, he was living for Christ, he was living for eternity, but he realized that he could really, you know, go off track and end up losing the rewards he would have otherwise received. In Revelation 3.11, Jesus said, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may take your crown. Jesus said those words to a group of believers who were being persecuted. Now think about that context. 
how easy it would be to defect in that setting. He was encouraging them to persevere and to be faithful so that they would not turn away. They would not, they would not backslide and forfeit the reward they were going to receive. Second John 8 says, look to yourselves. That is, watch yourself. Be careful that you do not lose the things we work for, but that you may receive a full reward. That's the same idea as Revelation 3.11. Look to yourselves. Pay close attention to your life so that you don't end up forfeiting rewards that you've already gained in your walk with the Lord. The Christians who refuse to do these things will suffer loss, according to verse 15. For some Christians, the judgment seat of Christ will probably be a day of remorse or shame. Not punishment, but remorse or shame. 1 John 2.28 says, And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. The clear implication of that verse is that some Christians who are not abiding in him as they ought to be are going to be ashamed before Christ because they weren't living the way they should have been living. And they knew they weren't living the way they should have been living. Their life wasn't really counting for eternity. So verse 15 says, some Christians will suffer loss at the judgment seat of Christ. But, please notice, God makes it clear that this loss is not loss of salvation. The last phrase in this 15th verse says, but, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Regardless of how much of a Christian's works are worthless, as tragic as that is, no true child of God will forfeit salvation. That's what it's clearly saying. This statement makes it clear that this judgment is not a judgment to see who goes to heaven, to see who goes to hell, to see if you're going to make it in. That's not the purpose of this judgment. This evaluation is only for believers. It's only for Christians. Again, I'll say, we won't even be at the judgment seat of Christ unless we are already saved and guaranteed of heaven. So that's why Paul could say at the end of the verse, he says, you know, if anyone's work is burned, he'll suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now there is certainly some consolation in those words, but I don't want to live my life in such a way so that when I stand before the Lord someday, all my life's works are burned up, consumed, and there's nothing left of eternal value for reward. Now, why would I want reward? So I can brag throughout eternity? Absolutely not, because I want to have something to cast at the feet of Jesus in worship and adoration. So how about you? How are you living your life? How are you investing your time? How are you investing your money? How are you investing your energy? How are you prioritizing your life? You see, beloved, the day is coming. The day is coming when things that seem so important to us now will be seen as trivial, unimportant, and even meaningless. And the things that now seem to be somewhat unreal to us will be seen as all that has ever really mattered. So the point is this. Live your life for Christ. Live your life for eternity. Live your life to touch others, to, to minister to others, to serve Christ, to serve others. In whatever vehicles, whatever ways, whatever opportunities the Lord gives you, 
make your life count. Because one day, the Lord in His grace wants to reward you for that. And if you don't give Him the opportunity because you don't live your life accordingly, you'll suffer loss. And that would be tragic. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head in closing this morning, just take a few moments to think about what you have seen in God's Word this morning from these passages in First and Second Corinthians. And think about your own life as a child of God if you, if you are a Christian. And think about how you're living your life. Do you live it with eternity in view, with eternity in mind? That doesn't mean that everything you do in life revolves around church. Because maybe God has called you to be a teacher or a carpenter or a doctor or a businessman or housewife or whatever it is. That's why Colossians 3 says, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. So this, this message, this, this doesn't mean that we have to figure out how everything we do in life is churchy. But it means that everything we do in life has to be with eternity in mind. That we do what we do as unto the Lord. We do it for Him. So we do it to the best of our ability. And we do it to serve other people. We do it to help other people. We do it with Christ in mind because we're living for Christ. So ask yourself the question, is that the way you live your life as a child of God? With Christ in mind. Doing what you do as unto Him. And if it's not the way you live, then the exhortation the admonishment from these passages is that change needs to take place. Change toward an eternal perspective. To living in light of what really is going to matter in eternity. Now if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're not a child of God, you've not surrendered to Him, then this, this doesn't really apply to you because this evaluation is only for believers. The issue for you is surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. The issue for you is realizing that as a sinner, you deserve judgment. But as we celebrate at this time of the year, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So if you're here today without a relationship with Christ, then that's the issue you need to face, not thinking about your life being rewarded. You need to Think about eternity and where you're going to spend eternity. And you need to let go of whatever is holding you back. Repent of your sin. Humble yourself before God and receive Jesus Christ in simple childlike faith. So whatever the need is in your life as far as response this morning, I urge you not to just turn your mind off, close your mind off, and walk out of here unchanged. Let's allow the Spirit of God to change us as he speaks to our hearts through his precious and powerful word. Father, thank you for the reminder of eternity. We need that regularly. This, this life has such a pull on us that we so easily forget that even if we live to be 80, 90, or 100 years old, it's, it's a speck of dust compared to eternity. It's just a vapor that appears and then is gone. Eternity is what really matters ultimately. So may we live in light of eternity. May we live our lives with that, 
that in view, with that focus, to live for Christ and just seek to be who he wants us to be, whether that's like the Colossians to whom Paul said, do what you do heartily as under the Lord as Christian slaves. So whether we're, our vocation is in this field or that field or whatever arena, it really, really doesn't matter just as long as we live for Christ and serve him with our lives. And Father, in closing, we want to pray for anyone who is here with us this morning who cannot call you Father and who does not know your Son Jesus as Lord and Savior. May your Holy Spirit bring understanding, bring conviction. May your Holy Spirit draw that man or woman to faith in Jesus Christ. We remember what Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And we pray, Father, you would draw any in our midst who need to come to faith in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.